You are listening to Hope Fellowship Church of Jaffrey, New Hampshire. If you would like to check out more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit hfcnh.org. Let's uh, turn now to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8. I kind of encouraged you last week, if you can, bring a Bible or find it uh, on your phone or something, because we're going through a lot of material, especially here at the beginning of this series on King David. Uh, we're going to be going through quite a bit of passages today, but really, uh, we're going to be just telling one story, and the story is the narrative and the true historical narrative of King Saul. This is the last message, I think, right before we get to the introduction of King David, or David comes onto the scene. Literally, we'll be halfway through 1 Samuel, and we've mentioned David a handful of times, and the whole series is called King David. And so there's a lot of setup here at this, this time. Chapter 16 is when David comes onto the scene. But what we've seen is a lot of hinting towards David. We've seen a lot of anti-types and we've seen a lot of Israel being kind of this faltering nation seeking to figure out what, where do they put their trust and who will lead them and guide them and direct them. And so we're going to see a little bit more of that today. We're going to look at King Saul. Today's message is called Saul's Downfall. Saul's Downfall. We looked at David's prelude of Judges, Ruth, and then we, we looked at uh, Samuel's Ebenezer where we talked about this idea of Samuel really leading the people of God, and we ended in chapter 7 with him setting up a stone statue, a stone pillar that had Ebenezer on it, meaning the stone of help, for up until now the Lord has helped us. And we begin in this wonderful, wonderful way there, or in a sense, we ended with that wonderful way. God rescuing his people with a mighty sound, sending the Philistines scattering, and we have this extraordinary victory. And then we come to 1 Samuel chapter 8, and quite a bit of time has passed. When you're reading the Bible, you, you kind of just, the next verse, you know, you would just seem well, and the next day. Really, you could say, skip ahead many years, and you get to chapter 8. So in between 7 and 8, there's a lot of time. A lot of time has passed. And what we're going to be seeing over these 8 through 15, as we just kind of, as I tell the story today, and hopefully look at different passages along the way there, what we're going to be seeing, I think, has been helpful for me is really being able to see the picture of Saul and King Saul and the downfall of Saul really almost being a mirror image of, of you and I apart from Christ. I find in this passage fascinating um, situations that really harken back to a time much, much before Saul, the time you could say the beginning of time. Uh, where in the Garden of Eden, we have a, a picture of the fall in chapter 3. God creates this extraordinary kingdom, this, this Garden of Eden, and we have the fall of mankind depicted in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, the story of Genesis. And so Saul's downfall that we see in many different places seems to look eerily similar to the fall in Genesis. And I think there's a deeper message being taught to us about sin and about ourselves and about who we put on the throne of our hearts and who we exalt as God over the one true God, who we worship and our idols. 
And this story, which is really the story of humanity from the beginning of time, from the dawn of time, you could say, right? We've been hearing this story. You live this all the time apart from Christ. When we constantly allow ourselves to dethrone God and we enthrone ourselves, we will find that, as you'll hear many times in this message and throughout this series, pride goes before a fall. We see that in Genesis 3. We see that in the life of Saul. You'll see that in your own life if you allow that to happen. And I think that's the storyline here. Many of you grew up in Sunday schools we just talked about where maybe you were taught these stories. You know about Jonathan and David. You know about Saul and Samuel. But how is it that we tie them together and how does that apply to our lives today? So hopefully maybe today will be a little bit of a mixture of both. A little bit of Sunday school lessons as we go through some of the history of Saul's rise and his epic fall. And also as we seek to see the underlying lesson being taught to us about how we are not God. We are not the king. We do not establish right and wrong. That is reserved for, for one alone, holy God above us all. And as we glorify him, as we worship him, he is the one that we look to. And so we have to be careful not to enthrone ourselves or anything else above God. But we know that our disobedience in life and our sin in life is only taken care of through the person of Jesus Christ. And we'll end there hopefully today as we look to Jesus and his obedience and his uh, example and testimony and his final sacrifice that wipes away all our sin allows us to come into the presence of a holy God. And so, we begin in chapter 8. We begin in chapter 8, and before I read, I'll just pray again. I just want to start with that. Let me pray. Father, we thank you. We praise you. As we've already prayed multiple times, as we've sung multiple songs, as we've sung your praises, you are, you are holy. You are amazing. You are a good Father. You are worthy of our worship, and we praise you for it. Today, God, would you transform our hearts? Would you allow this word not to be information transferal, but Lord, would you allow this information, this truth to sink deep into our hearts and transform us into your likeness? May you be glorified today in Jesus' name, amen. First Samuel chapter eight, I'm gonna read here a couple of verses. We will be also skipping through different chapters. As you know, I'm not going to be able to read every verse from chapter. The booth actually came down to me earlier. Are, are you wanting us to have every verse from chapter 8 to 15 available? And I said, no, 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 no. So, so, so we're not going to be doing that, but, but make sure you're, you're with me and you can follow along. Maybe on your phone app or on your Bible, you can follow along as we tell the story. It begins here in chapter 8, verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Verse 3, yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. If you've been following along or you've been listening or maybe you caught the podcast if you missed the sermon, you know we talked about Hophni and Phinehas and priest Eli and his, their downfall and how they corrupted the priesthood, and now we see Samuel's own sons doing the same thing. Our minds start hearkening back, and we're wondering in ourselves as we start reading it, we're wondering, oh no, in a sense. 
you've read about Eli and Hophni and Phinehas, his two sons, and you're wondering to yourself, oh no, is the story going to repeat itself? Is disaster simply looming on the horizon? And is, is this going to end the same way as we just were reading it? And you're, you're almost in a sense kind of nervous about where this is going to head. And so then we, we read, and it keeps going on in verse 4 through 9. It talks about how they begin, the people of Israel begin to say this, we want a king. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel. Samuel's kind of the one in charge, the judge at the time, and the priest at the time. Samuel at Ramah and said to him, behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Meaning, hey, look, this is, this is your fault, Samuel. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. But this thing displeased Samuel. And when they said this, give us a king to judge us, Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all their ways. For they have not rejected you personally. They have rejected me from being king over them. That's a key phrase. God is saying, they, the people, have rejected me, God, as their king. Verse 8, according to all the deeds that they have done from the day that I brought them out of Egypt to this day, forsaking me, they've been serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. As you'll see in the coming verses, we're going to look at the rest of that chapter, but he's The the, the children of Israel at this time, the the nations are organized in tribes. There's no central person like a king to unify them outside of a person like Samuel. They see Samuel growing old. They see the the way his sons are going. They don't want to repeat this. So they said, I know what we need. We need a king. And at face value, the request seems to make a lot of sense. I mean, for what we just shared, Samuel has not done a great job raising his two sons. We see how their direction is not going to lead the place, uh, people of Israel. In fact, in, in Genesis, uh, we see uh, that this idea of a scepter and a kingdom being given to Judah and throughout the future of the people of Israel, as Jacob is talking about how a scepter and royalty will come from Judah. We see that even in Moses and other places, there are hints that a king is coming. And so maybe they're picking up even on that and how, hey, now's the time. Now's the time for a king. We need a king too. You see, it's not necessarily the, the request of we need a king. It's, it's how they make the request. Isn't that, isn't that how often life is? I have to tell my kids, it's, it's not exactly like what you're asking. It's your tone, right? <laughs> or as the word I say, it's your tood, right? Um, yo, check the tood, okay, right? I need a snack. Dad, get me a snack, right? I'm not your little servant boy here, okay? We need to speak with respect, right? And so we're trying to teach our children often to do that. Yes, you might need this or that. That's wonderful. But you talk to me with respect. You don't come with a whiny attitude. You don't come like a spoiled brat, even if it's something you need. And so what we have here is the people of Israel potentially requesting something that maybe isn't out of the realm of the possibility here, but the way they're asking. And ultimately, the key through all of 1 Samuel is the heart. The heart that's behind it is all off. And we get that sense right from the beginning. The heart behind it is self-centered. The pride of self. Pride goes before a fall, right? This is going to come up over and over over the next couple of weeks. In fact, the concept, like we said, of a king is not that bad of an idea. It's the way that they're bringing up. It's the way they're going about it. They say, now is the time for the king. And so what you, what you see in verses 10 through 18, I'm not going to read them all, 
But if you were to peruse down through verses 10 through 18, you'll notice a phrase pop up over and over and over. This king, from Samuel's vantage point and from God's vantage point, here's a warning. Be careful, for this king is going to take. He will take, and he will take, and when there is nothing left to take, he will enslave you. And ultimately, what he's happening here in verses eight through, uh, 10, sorry, 10 through 18 is ultimately him, uh, God, and Samuel here reminding the people, be careful. Be careful what you ask for. For the king that you want, reflecting your heart, motives, and values, will be a king that will do nothing but take everything he has from you. You can, you can ultimately, jokingly say, it's like Samuel goes to the people and says, you know, you guys ever heard of taxes? <laughs> You're going to be taxed to death, okay? You are going to be taxed. Uh, you could even say it this way, you know, this aspect of, of sin as it reflects this idea that this aspect, that sin is ultimately going to come into your life. As the, as the classic preacher said, sin will take you farther than you expected to go. It's going to keep you longer than you intended to stay. And it will cost you more than you ever expected to pay. We need a king. We want a king to reflect our values so we can be like the other nations. Look how good they're doing. Say, be careful what you ask for. For this sinful act that you're about to step into is going to take you farther than you expect to go, keep you longer than you intended to stay, and it will cost you more than you ever expected to pay. And so... Ultimately, what happens in verse 19 through 22, look at verse 19 through 22, it says, but the people refused to obey the voice, the voice of Samuel, which reflects the word of God. The word of God is directed through Samuel at this time, so there is an ultimate coup and rebellion against Samuel and God. Here he says, verse 19, and they said, no. (laughs) Did I talk about a spoiled child earlier, right? Okay, they said, no. But there shall be a king over us. You know, you could just see it, right, man? It's just this toddler aspect here. Verse 20, but that we also may be like all the other nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So key verses. And Samuel heard all the words of the people. He repeated them in the ears of the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice, make them a king. Samuel said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city, and we'll read on. But, but, but before we do, look at verse 20. That verse is key. You get this breakdown here. They refuse to obey, and they say, here are our demands. <laughs> oh, there's so many points here. We, we've got to keep moving. But there, you come to God, and you're like, here's my list of demands, God. You better meet them. Ready, go. Here we go. Number one, we want a king so we can be like everybody else. Not a great reason, right? <laughs> Number two, we want a king to judge us. We want a king to judge us or a, a king to establish justice. This is the whole book of Judges. God's been bringing in people trying to do that very thing, but they've been rebelling against every judge that comes along the way. This king will judge you all right, I guess he would say. He will certainly judge you. Uh, just the problem is he's going to establish his form of justice, not God's. And then we need a king who will fight our battles. And I, in some ways, you're, you're just like, God, God must be at times just, I, I guess maybe not. He isn't this way. He's not surprised by anything. But I, I, in my head, I'm thinking just like, he's, he's, he's like, are you kidding me, right? Do, do we not remember the Red Sea, Egypt, the Ten Plagues? You ever heard of Jericho? You ever heard of a guy named Gideon? 
Ever heard of just a few chapters before the Ark of the Covenant right in front of the Temple of Dagon as the Temple of uh, the Statue of Dagon comes falling down and a pestilence scatters throughout? God can take care of himself and he's pretty good at fighting your battles if you just simply go to him and trust him, right? But no, no, no. We need a king to fight our battles for us, right? So it's ironic, it's idiotic, it's thick-headed, and yet it looks a lot like you and me, doesn't it? <laughs> doesn't it? I mean, we, we, we see ourselves in this passage, it's so hard not to be like, yeah, that's, that's how I act quite a bit, actually. It's, uh, it's ultimately, from the very beginning, from the Garden of Eden, it's tantamount to rebellion. It's the rejection of God. It's the rejection of His identity upon us. I mean, Israel's very existence is to not be like the other nations. <laughs> That's literally why Israel exists. They're the chosen people of God, they're separated outside of the other nations in order to be a light, to bring in a blessing, to bless the whole world. They are literally separated, holy, chosen people of God, a holy priesthood, separated, and they want to be the very opposite of what God has made them to be. They want to be like everyone else. And it's interesting because God says the very same things about you. <laughs> what does he say in 1 Peter? What is the church? The church is a holy, chosen people, a royal priesthood, <laughs> separated out, chosen from God in order to be a light, to be salt, a light, a city on a hill, right? I mean, and yet so often we are clamoring and literally directing our entire lives to be just like everyone else. And so nobody notices that we go to church on Sunday and we might be a Christian, right? You notice I whispered that, right? And so much of our lives oriented around that very concept. I just want to be like everybody else. I don't want to have anything different in my life. And I even run into this oftentimes when I'm not feeling up to it one day. And I meet somebody new for the first time. Hey, Jordan, how you doing? What's your name? Jordan, oh, hi. What do you do? And I'm like, ah, right? Now I have to have a spiritual conversation with this person. Or I can be like everybody else. I work in construction. I, no, no, I don't know. I, 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 so I had to say, well, I'm a pastor. Oh, that's interesting, right? And then boom, you open the door, right? But there is such that inside of us, I just want to be like everybody else doesn't mean that, no, our church or your lifestyle has to just be weird, okay? We're not saying just be weird or different. The concept is be separated, be transformed into the likeness of God, reflect His way, follow Him with your life, be His disciple, and you stand out from the crowd because there's something different in your life. The chosen people of God didn't have a king like the other nations because God was their king, and as they directed, as they moved, as they worked, as they lived, God rescued them when they came to Him for help. As they lived righteously according to His law, He blessed them. This was separate. This was different. The church of Jesus Christ, Hope Fellowship Church, one local representation of the universal body of Christ, is to be a church pursuing holiness, sanctification, the aspect that we are being set apart, we are being washed, we are being renewed, we are being regenerated, we are being transformed. We are be there are so many different ways in which we are made into the likeness of Christ so that others may see our good works, so that they may see that we are zealous for good works, and that they must see that there must be a heart behind the reason of what they're doing out there. And that, that heart is a changed heart, a humble heart before God. And so, 
we are a holy people, this sense, right? But they want to be like the other nations. They want this person to come and judge them, to bring justice in their ways, in their eyes. And we need a king to fight our battles, fight our battles. And so what happens is we come to chapter 9, verse 1. Chapter 9 says there was a man. And here is so we just left with there. We need a king. Give us a king. Chapter 9, we meet the king is in my title here on, the, on this point. Uh, there's a king who wins the People's Choice Award, okay? His name is here in a moment there, a man of ben- Benjamin, whose name uh, was of Kish, and the son of Abiel, and Zeror, and Becheroth, and the son of Aphael, and the Benjamite made of a man of wealth. And he had a son, and his name was Saul. People Choice Award goes to Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. Quite important detail to put in there. And from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of his people. That may, right? Tall people? Yes, right? Wait, we're, no. The opposite is here. David, right, is often always depicted as the youngest and the smallest. And Saul, right off the bat, is told he's the tall one. He's the strong one. He's the good-looking one. He's the one everybody would think would be a king. But where's his heart? That's the question we're supposed to be asking. So the popular vote, the mob rule, the People's Choice Award goes to King Saul. And ultimately what we see here in verses 1 and 2 is God is kind of saying, all right, you ask for it. You ask for it. Here you go. Here's a king who reflects your values. We can kind of see that in the Garden of Eden. You asked for this. I told you, right? And yet, even despite all of this, what we're going to see, that God is not just bring down the hammer and it's over, right? Even in the garden, he makes a way of redemption. He gives you a plan. I will, of the seed of the woman, I will bring one who will crush the head of the snake. I have a plan to rectify this because I love you. I care for you. I know you have been disobedient and wayward. I know your heart is not right, but I am going to rescue you. He's going to do the same thing. So don't lose hope here. Don't lose hope. But he also helps us understand the consequences of our sin. And that's what ultimately happens here. And so we often think we can take this on ourselves. We've decided to take the ownership here. We've decided to say it's time for a king. We can do it ourselves, God. He says, all right, see if you can lift it. Here you go. Here's my glory. Here's the glory of leading the people of Israel. Can you lift that? Are you strong enough to hold it? And we know from the last couple of chapters, glory means weight. And here the glory is kind of coming upon the people and uh, it's a weight they cannot hold on their own. And so Saul is six foot six. You could say he's tall, he's handsome, he's strong, and he's from a wealthy family line. He's got everything going for him. He's the perfect political candidate for the presidency, right? Okay, he's a good choice. It's ultimately an accurate reflection of the people and what they value. Their choice of leaders, uh, really, you could almost say that even today in modern days, often the leaders that we have in charge, whether we like them or not, are often a reflection of the country or the nation's values, is it not? Every time we go into a political season, midterms, yay, meaning commercials everywhere, signs everywhere, right? These people that are elected and put into place and are in power often reflect the values of the nation. And here's what we see in Saul, these values coming out, aspect of outward strength, outward power. We look a king that looks like a king but doesn't act like one. And also what we see is fascinating. If you look at the Hebrew, the word Saul 
actually related to the name Samuel. We won't go into that too much for sake of time, but the word Saul means asked for. The name Saul means asked for. I guess the idea of Samuel is Samuel is a derivative of Saul. Saul, this idea, Samuel, they both have a, a, a relation that they mean asked for. And Hannah comes to God in humility, pouring out her heart, and she says, this is the child that I have prayed and I have asked for, and the Lord has granted my asking or request and given me Samuel. And it's a reflection of her heart that God blesses her with. The reflection of the people of God, we are asking, really we are demanding a king. I'll give you a king that matches that. And here he is. His name is Saul. Saul means ask for. So Saul becomes the king they sauled, all right? 1 Samuel 9 um, talks about this idea. Verses 3 through 4 also gives us a little bit more insight as to this Saul. So we find out he's tall, he's handsome, he's strong, he's wealthy. What do we find this guy doing? What's the, what's the first thing we see Saul doing? And I, I think it's almost meant to be comical. There are times that I'm reading the Bible because I have a weird sense of humor, as you know. And there are times I just laugh because this passage, the very first thing we see Saul doing, says in verse 3, this is very key. This is the first introductory detail that you get to about Saul and his life. And now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost of Saul's father here. So Kish said to Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you, arise and go look for the donkeys. They give extraordinary amount of detail about how Saul cannot find the donkeys, okay? And it's, it's quite comical. He's, he's literally wandering around with his friend and they cannot find the donkeys, and you're like, why would they go a whole chapter about this? Well, there's a variety of reasons. But one of the reasons is just a depiction. This person, Saul, has no idea how to do even the simplest of tasks. And yet, what do we find David doing? The very first introductory de- details you will find of David. He's the youngest. And what is he faithfully doing while everyone else is doing something else? He is tending sheep. He's caring for the sheep. And he's really good at it. We find out later, he's killed a bear. He's killed a lion. He's faithful to God. He gives glory to him. There is just this extraordinary contrast. Do you see that? In the very beginning, this guy wandering around. And then he finally is like, look, we can't find these donkeys. We should probably go to someone who does know. What's that guy's name? That seer? What's his name? Oh, Samuel. Let's go talk to him. And God, in his providence and love, says, Saul, you will be anointed prince or leader. He doesn't even use the word king. We see that in verse 10, chapter 10. And then we come upon Saul again. After he's anointed in secret and in private by Samuel, we see in the end of chapter 10, verse 21, this is a verse that many of you are probably very familiar with. In Sunday school, it's often taught. Verse 21, he's gotten out for the, now the public presentation of Saul. Uh, it says in verse 21, he brought the tribes of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites um, uh, were taken by Lot, and Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. And when they sought him, they're looking for Saul. Okay, everybody's like taking Lot's, and it's being whittled down to the tribe of Benjamin. It's being whittled down to Saul's family. And he could not be found. Where, where's Saul? So they inquired again of the Lord, and is there man still to come? And the Lord said, behold... So again, it's a comical story. Behold, he's hiding behind those bags over there. It's humiliating. Then verse 22, they ran. They took him from over there. They found him hiding. He probably has some excuse. And when he stood up among the people, everyone's like, whoa, he's really tall. 
He was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. Verse 24, chapter 10, and Samuel said to all the people, do you see whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people, and all the people shout for the first time the word king. Long live the king, they say. Long live the king. Who chooses the king? Ultimately, it's in conjunction with God presenting this person to the people of God, and they say, long live the king. 1 Samuel 11, actually, we see Saul stepping onto the scene, kind of quite different than what we just experienced. 1 Samuel chapter 11, the whole story uh, chapter gives us a story about the Ammonites and him defeating the Ammonites, but he does it through the power of God. It talks about how the Spirit of God rushes upon Saul. He's filled with the Spirit, and he goes out, and he leads an extraordinary victory against the enemies of God, the Ammonites, in this situation. And there's a key verse, I love it, it says in verse 11, Uh, Chapter 11, verse 13, and Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. It's It's a beautiful start. It's a wonderful start. Saul starts out giving glory to God. His heart is directed upward. It is the heart of a person whom God does not despise, but will elevate and exalt. But something changes. And, and really historians and, and writers and commentators and theologians have been talking about this and arguing for years about what changes from chapter 12 to chapter 13. How is it that Saul begins in such a manner, in such a way, giving glory to God, winning a mighty victory for the people of God? What changes, and ultimately we know in some way, shape, or form, his heart is what changes. But what we, what's really neat is we come upon this story in chapter 12 where Samuel steps in front of the people. And Samuel is getting old. He's, he's kind of trying to pass the baton, you could say, or the mantle from a light, right? And he, he knows his time is coming close to an end. It's not done yet. But he gives a, for, a farewell speech, kind of like a, a president who's leaving office, and he's not out yet, but uh, he's giving a farewell speech, and at the same time, he preaches a pretty good message. And he preaches a sermon, and he gives a forewarning in, in um, movies or literature or whatever storylines, you, you call this foreshadowing. Ever you know, foreshadowing? You read about something that is to come. Like if you didn't know who Saul or David was at all until you're reading this for the first time, you come upon chapter 12 and the things that are foreshadowed in chapter 12 are extraordinary. It gives the ideas that really are encapsulated in the whole book. He says this in verse 14 of chapter 12. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord. And if both you and the king who reigns over you, if you will follow the Lord God, if you do these things, it will be well with you. It will be well. Verse 15. But, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord but rebel against the commandment of the Lord and the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. So therefore, stand still and see the great thing that the Lord will do before you in your eyes. And God sends a mighty thunder and a rain by the hand of Samuel. And later on, he says in chapter 20, uh, verse 20 and 21, don't turn aside after empty things and idols. They are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his grace. He won't leave you. He won't forsake you. He loves you and he cares for you. Turn to him. He says, fear the Lord. Serve him faithfully with all your heart. This is the story here. It's almost like you're just holding like, Saul, please don't do it, you know. Follow the Lord. And yet what we have, we have chapter 13 and 14 where we see this epic demise, this downfall and demise of Saul. Saul's unlawful sacrifice we see first. Saul 
comes into an encounter. We see major battle with the Ammonites. He is won by the Lord's hand, for the Lord brings salvation. We now have an encounter with the Philistines. And the final chapter that we're going to focus most of our time here in a minute is chapter 15, where he has an encounter with the Amalekites. Ammonites, Philistines, and the Amalekites, the enemies of God. He first starts with this unlawful sacrifice. We see that there are uh, epic numbers mounting against the people of God. They have hardly any weapons. The people of Israel are hiding just like their king. It says that they are literally hiding in caves. Does that sound familiar? They're hiding because they're afraid. Saul doesn't know what to do. He's impatient. He's worried. It's like he is waiting for somebody to come and fix this, and he's been told, you wait. You stay where you are. You wait for seven days. Verse 8 of 1 Samuel 13. You wait seven days in the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. And so Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offering. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, Saul himself doing that, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Hey, what's going on, Samuel? Samuel said, what have you done? There's supposed to be this conjunction with Samuel seeking the favor and the approval and the direction from God and Saul enacting that out as like a commander of the Lord's army kind of aspect. But Saul skips Samuel and heads right to God's favor and says, I'll do this myself because Saul, he knows best. He knows the way. Saul has a better idea. And so Saul's way, and and even though things are mounting up against him, he does this and he is done foolishly. And so in verse 14, we get this epic foreshadowing as well. Verse 14 of chapter 30 says, But now your kingdom shall not continue, for the Lord has sought a man. Get this phrase. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince or leader over his people, because you have not kept the Lord, the word of the Lord that was commanded to you. And so we see this phrase here. A man after God's own heart, a man who is willing to do God's will. Where is this man? Who will this man be? We're beginning to find out this might not be Saul here. <laughs> and so this person is coming. Saul does not wait for the approval of Samuel. He does not wait for what Samuel thinks. He skips ahead and he does his own thing in his own way, d- ignoring the direction from God. And so I, I wonder. David is this man, even though in many ways we see this coming out, but it, it's this picture of just that we, we read and we, we think and we consider, am I a man who, who does the will of God? Am I a man who, who's being sought out by God? Am I a man who seeks to skip what God wants me, has for me in my life? I'm impatient. I want to ignore his warnings and his ways, and I want to do it my way, and I end up paying the price for that. It's a due passage. It's a wonderful passage to consider for our own hearts and our own lives. Are we willing to seek out the will of God and what he would have for our lives? Or are we here like Saul, impatiently skipping ahead, ignoring the commandments of God? And what we see is this only continues. Chapter 14, we see the Philistines are still here. They've not been defeated. They're not sure what to do. Saul is again, he, he has bad friends, wrong friends, bad advisors. He is ignoring Samuel now. He's pushed Samuel aside because Samuel doesn't tell him what he wants to hear. And so he finds someone who will tell him what he wants to hear. 
Notice verse 3 of 1 Samuel chapter 14. And maybe some of you who were here last week, you will pick up on this. The people who are described in here are very important. Look at verse 3. This is who Sam, uh, Saul brings to his advisory council. Verse 3 says, including this person, Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother. Do you remember Ichabod from last week? Do you remember what Ichabod means? Ichabod's name means where's the glory? For the glory of the Lord has departed from Israel. The ark has been stolen. Ichabod's mother dies in labor. Ichabod here is given, is born this way. Ichabod's brother, the son of who? Phineas, the son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. I mean, the names given there are specific and on purpose for you. It, they are red flag. You, you ever say, look, there's a few red flags here, okay? That's what you're supposed to be doing. You're reading through the scripture. Those are red flags. Phineas was a wicked and evil person that desecrated the temple, turned the very tabernacle of God into a brothel. We see him being slaughtered by God in battle. Ichabod was born out of a time when Eli, Phineas, and Hophni, desecration, there was a loss. They were wiped out, and Ichabod is born, and his mother names him Ichabod because where is the glory? It's gone. And now these are the people, this Ahijah person is the person at Saul's side, whispering into his ear and telling him what to do. And we see him pop out again in verse 18. Saul says to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here. Ahijah gives him increase. He's working with Ahijah, no longer Samuel. He's surrounding him with the wrong person. And yet, Saul, even despite all of this, we have this beautiful, wonderful character, Jonathan, who's the foil to Saul. You look to Jonathan, and I would love to have, spend more time on this. If, it's a wonderful story for you to study on your own, chapter 14. You look at Jonathan and you see how he takes on this battle on his own. His father is ignoring this. Saul is, is not following uh, the Lord. He is seeking counsel from evil men. He's dis undecisive. Jonathan says, look, the enemy's over there. You, me, let's go. Two people. Tells his armor bearer to follow him. He sneaks into the enemy's territory. And he says, "If they, we're going to go up to that place because... The Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving us by many or a few. Jonathan is fighting his battles, the battle of the Lord, by faith in God. Direct contrast to Saul, who is living out of fear. He's leading out of fear. His whole uh, ministry at this time as a king of Israel is out of fear. And we see Saul doing this later on with David and Goliath. He doesn't know what to do. David steps onto the scene. But here we see fear in Saul and faith in Jonathan. Jonathan wins a mighty battle, a mighty victory here. Uh, and, and then the earth quakes, God sends and scatters Philistines. And it continues into the end of chapter 4 where Saul makes a, a rash vow he knows Jonathan and these other things are going on. And so he, he says, nobody's allowed to eat any food. Don't touch a morsel of food until I say so, until we win the victory. He's trying to establish his own holy war. He's trying to gain favor from God who's not listening to him at this time. And he enacts this end. And foolishly, Jonathan, without knowing this, takes of some honey. And, and Saul basically swears to kill his own son, who happens to be the very person who won the victory over the Philistines, the hero of the story. Saul is saying, well, I've got to keep my word. You see, Saul's more interested in keeping his own word than keeping the word of God. 
He's more interested in, in following what he wants to do and building his kingdom in his way, in his timing, than he is about listening to the very word of God. The very word of God from Samuel, the very direction and obedience and looking to the one who could do something about it, he looks inwardly to himself and he pays the price. Eventually the people come about and say, no, 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 we're not going to kill Jonathan, this is foolish. They ransom Jonathan. And then we come to chapter 15, the final passage for today. Final, you could say the nail in the coffin, the straw that broke the camel's back, whatever phrase you'd like to use. <laughs> Here's the one uh, that comes upon it. What happens is the Amalekites come onto the scene. And Saul, even though he has disappointed God and disobeyed God at this time, God is still determined to use a person like Saul to accomplish his purposes. And he asks Saul, he gives him very specific instructions. You are going to wipe the existence of Amalek and the Amalekites off the face of the earth. And this is a hard passage to describe, and I don't have time to get into the ethical dilemmas here that are challenging for us to go through. But what we see is that Amalek had been doing a like manner, similar thing earlier on. God says he has noted, says in chapter 15, verse 1, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them. What we see is when Israel came out of Egypt, Amalek is literally, it's said in Deuteronomy, that they were, they were cutting off the tail of Israel as they traveled through the wilderness. They were attacking the weak and the poor and the, the, the needy and those who were, who were um, not strong. They were coming through and attacking them. And it says in Deuteronomy that they did not fear Yahweh. And they opposed him by attacking the people of God. And so God says, I will return and I will be just to the people of Amalek. And he uses Saul as an instrument of, of God's divine justice upon the grave sin of Amalek. And yet Saul does not do what he's told to do. Saul had better ideas. He, he spares uh, many of the choice cattle and animals. He spares King Agag. He takes of the spoils. God says, get rid of it all. Saul says, that's a great idea, God. I'll get around to that when I can. I've got a few better ideas before I do. Saul knew better than God. That's what we've been learning along this entire way. And what happens is this story where Samuel then comes upon the scene. Saul's making literally a monument to himself. <laughs> and then he's building an altar and he's going to be sacrificing some of the animals to God. Even though this, he's told not to do this. And Samuel comes upon the scene in verse 13. Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, Blessed be to you, the Lord, for I have performed the commandment of the Lord. I've done exactly what you said, right? Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? So you can try to cover up your sin all you want. You can try to get away from it. But what is it that I hear right now? Ultimately, this passage leads us to eventually what Samuel says in verse 22, a key passage, one that you're probably well familiar with. Verse 22 of 1 Samuel 15, he leads us to the key point of the whole section. And Samuel said this, verse 22, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Phrase, it is better to obey than sacrifice. Joyce Baldwin says this, takes, this passage takes us to the heart of the story. 
as the NLT says, what is more pleasing to the Lord? Your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? We talk about excuses and everything becomes gray or unclear. We downplay our sin. We go through the motions. We, we attend church, Bible reading. We go through the motions of, of seeking him, praising him. But what is actually pleasing to God? Your ritual observance or your obedience to his voice? Samuel pronounces for all time the futility of attempting to rely on ritual sacrifice when what is required is actual obedience. No ceremonial ritual can make up for a rebellious attitude to God and his commandments because obstinate resistance to God exalts. Get this. Obstinate resistance to God exalts self-will to the place of authority which belongs only to God. That is why he says in here, it's, it's like this rebellion is like the sin of divination. Like you are pursuing witchcraft and evil spirits and seeking their favor more than you are God. It's tantamount to idolatry for another God. You've placed this little statue and you're worshiping him over Yahweh because you think you are in charge. Self has usurped the place of God. The parallel statements of the last two lines here, God rejects you because you've rejected him. And so what we see is this exalting of self above all others. This is the chief sin of Saul and the chief sin, I, I dare say, of mankind, is it not? Where we began. Do you remember where we began? Garden of Eden. We're brought back there. It's a very similar situation. Adam and Eve, one tree, they listen to the wicked snake, they're deceived in their minds and they, they want to be like God. Ultimately, they want their own way. They establish their own rule and justifications to establish right and wrong in their way. They desire to establish a kingdom of their making without God overlording them. They will be free to define good and evil and right and wrong in their own terms. Therefore, they will be chief. They will be king. They'll be free, free from God. Sin, pride, self, this is the original sin. You could say they, they, they hide themselves in the garden, do they not? They hide themselves. They're afraid when this happens in Genesis. Similar, sounds similar to Paul, Saul. And then, then God comes into the garden. Adam, where are you? <laughs> he knows right where he is. Who told you you were naked? There's deflection and blame. The, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit, right? It's her fault, okay? And then they're cursed and banished from the kingdom. And the kingdom is torn from them. Do you see this in Saul? The same situation of some sort. Saul is alone. He disobeys, clearly given commands. He aims to do things his way rather than God's way. He's the chief arbiter of right and wrong. And ultimately, Saul takes the fruit of pride and self. And because Saul knows best, right? He sets a monument to himself. And Samuel comes and asks a harmless question. Hey, what is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears? What is the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, he says. In the end, Saul will make all kinds of excuses. Well, I feared the voice of the people. It was their fault. They did it. They told me to do it. It sounds like Aaron and the golden calf. Sounds like the situation over and over. Sounds like you and me. <laughs> Leaves us with the question and the application, whose kingdom are we seeking? Whose kingdom are we building? Who are we being influenced by? Whose voice are we listening to? Whose kingdom do you want to come? 
Whose will do you want to be done? Saul and the Saul in all of us. <laughs> we want our own kingdom sometimes, ourselves, my will to be done, me, myself, and I. Rather than repeating the beautiful prayer of Jesus Christ that he gives his instruction, that our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. We can give the outward appearance of these things. We can go through the motions. You can attend church and put your kids in Sunday school. You can do all the ritual observance. And I dare say many people would have no idea where your heart is. You can go through the steps. You can go about living life in your way. As long as you put up enough attendance and enough things and enough giving, you can put them up over here. Look at the things that I do, God, but where my heart is far from you, Lord. I do these things in order for you to avoid the gaze of God examining your actual heart, which is seeking yourself, not him. And so your heart is ultimately seen by the Almighty. You cannot fool him. You cannot go through the motions and act like he does not see. Ritualistic aspects alone, outward whited sepulchers, these are the areas in which God sees right through. What he desires to see is the inward living spiritual reality, this ritual versus reality. This idea, as one commentator says, church attendance, tithing, they're worthless unless they come from the heart. If we miss the internal worship and confession, no amount of attention to the externals will change or atone for our disobeying God. And yet, what's beautiful about all of this is we know that's our hearts at times, right? but we close with Jesus because it's fascinating. In Romans 5, it talks about that same story in Genesis. Death in Adam, there's life in Christ. Romans 5 says that for by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. For by Saul's disobedience, many were made sinners and judgment came. For by Adam's disobedience, many were made sinners and judgment came. But by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Philippians 2 says that by becoming found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient. He became obedient. Saul disobeys. We disobey. Jesus has obeyed to the point of death, even death on a cross. Romans 5.17 says, For if because of one man's trespasses, death reigned through that one man, Adam, Saul, many others, you, me, much more. Will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? It is not in our ability to just out-Saul Saul and obey more than Saul did. It is in our ability or in God's ability to see Jesus, to, to look to Jesus, as the Bible said in the last week, to direct our hearts to God, to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God so at the proper time He will exalt us. It is not in our ability to come and to earn our way, but rather in Jesus' ability that He has made a way. And it's in Him. There is death in Adam, and there is death apart from Christ, but in Christ there is life. And there is, as we said this last week, there is hope of eternal life life. It's found in Jesus. We turn from our sin and we turn to Christ and you will find life.